Section 3 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 3, Chapter 12, Part 3. Want of economy and an ill-judged liberality were Henry's great defects, and his debts even before this expedition had become so troublesome that he sold all his plate and jewels in order to discharge them. When this expedient was first proposed to him, he asked where he should find purchasers. It was replied, The citizens of London. On my word, said he, if the treasury of Augustus were brought to sale, the citizens are able to be the purchasers. These clowns, who assume to themselves the name of baron, abound in everything, while we are reduced to necessities. And he was thenceforth observed to be more forward and greedy in his exactions upon the citizens. But the grievances which the English during this reign had reason to complain of in the civil government seem to have been still less burdensome than those which they suffered from the usurpations and exactions of the court of rome on the death of langton in 1228 the monks of christ church elected walter de hemsham one of their own body for his successor but as henry refused to confirm the election the pope at his desire annulled it and immediately appointed richard chancellor of lincoln for archbishop without waiting for a new election on the death of Richard, in 1231, the monks elected Ralph de Neville, Bishop of Chichester, and though Henry was much pleased with the election, the Pope, who thought the prelate too much attached to the court, assumed the power of annulling his election. He rejected two clergymen more, whom the monks had successively chosen, and he at last told them that if they would elect Edmund, treasurer of the Church of Salisbury, he would confirm their choice, and his nomination was complied with. The Pope had the prudence to appoint both times very worthy primates, but men could not forbear observing his intention of thus drawing gradually to himself the right of bestowing that important dignity. This avarice, however, more than the ambition of the See of Rome, seems to have been in this age the ground of general complaint. The papal ministers, finding a vast stock of power amassed by their predecessors, were desirous of turning it to immediate profit, which they enjoyed at home, rather than of enlarging their authority in distant countries where they never intended to reside. Everything was become venal in the Romish tribunals. Simony was openly practiced. No favors and even no justice could be obtained without a bribe. The highest bidder was sure to have the preference, without regard either to the merits of the person or of the cause. And besides the usual perversions of right in the decision of controversies, the Pope openly assumed an absolute and uncontrolled authority of setting aside, by the plenitude of his apostolic power, all particular rules and all privileges of patrons, churches, and convents. On pretense of remedying these abuses, Pope Honorius, in 1226, complaining of the poverty of his see as the source of all grievances, demanded from every cathedral two of the best prebends, and from every convent two monks' portions, to be set apart as a perpetual and settled revenue of the papal crown. But all men being sensible that the revenue would continue forever, and the abuses immediately return, his demand was unanimously rejected. 
about three years after the pope demanded and obtained the tenth of all ecclesiastical revenues which he levied in a very oppressive manner requiring payment before the clergy had drawn their rents or tithes and sending about usurers who advanced them the money at exorbitant interest in the year twelve forty otho the legate having in vain attempted the clergy in a body obtained separately by intrigues and menaces large sums from the prelates and convents and on his departure is said to have carried more money out of the kingdom than he left in it this experiment was renewed four years after with success by martin the nuncio who brought from rome powers of suspending and excommunicating all clergymen that refused to comply with his demands the king who relied on the pope for the support of his tottering authority never failed to countenance those exactions meanwhile all the chief benefices of the kingdom were conferred on italians great numbers of that nation were sent over at one time to be provided for non-residents and pluralities were carried to an enormous height mansell the king's chaplain is computed to have held at once seven hundred ecclesiastical livings and the abuses became so evident as to be palpable to the blindness of the superstition itself the people entering into associations rose against the italian clergy pillaged their barns wasted their lands insulted the persons of such of them as they found in the kingdom and when the justices made inquiry into the authors of this disorder the guilt was found to involve so many and those of such high rank that it passed unpunished at last when innocent the fourth in twelve forty five called a general council at lyons in order to excommunicate the emperor frederick the king and nobility sent over agents to complain before the council of the rapacity of the romish church they represented among many other grievances that the benefices of the italian clergy in england had been estimated and were found to amount to sixty thousand marks a year a sum which exceeded the annual revenue of the crown itself they obtained only an evasive answer from the pope but as mention had been made before the council of the feudal subjection of england to the see of rome the english agents at whose head was roger bigod earl of norfolk exclaimed against the pretension and insisted that king john had no right without the consent of his barons to subject the kingdom to so ignominious a servitude the popes indeed afraid of carrying matters too far against england seemed thenceforth to have little insisted on that pretension this check received at the council of Lyon was not able to stop the court of rome in its rapacity innocent exacted the revenues of all vacant benefices the twentieth of all ecclesiastical revenues without exception the third of such as were exceeded a hundred marks a year the half of such as were possessed by non-residents he claimed the goods of all intestate clergymen he pretended a title to inherit all money gotten by usury he levied benevolences upon the people and when the king contrary to his usual practice prohibited these exactions he threatened to pronounce against him the same censures which he had emitted against the emperor frederick but the most oppressive expedient employed by the pope was the embarking of henry in a project for the conquest of naples or sicily on this side of the fair as it was called an enterprise which threw much dishonor on the king and involved him during some years in great trouble and expense 
the Romish church, taking advantage of favorable incidents, had reduced the kingdom of Sicily to the same state of feudal vassalage which she pretended to extend over England, and which, by reason of the distance as well as high spirit of this latter kingdom, she was not able to maintain. After the death of the emperor Frederick II, the succession of Sicily devolved to Conradine, grandson of that monarch, and Mainfroy, his natural son, under pretense of governing the kingdom during the minority of the prince, had formed a scheme of establishing his own authority. Pope Innocent, who had carried on violent war against the Emperor Frederick, and had endeavored to dispossess him of his Italian dominions, still continued hostilities against his grandson. But being disappointed in all his schemes by the activity and artifices of Mainfroy, he found that his own force alone was not sufficient to bring to a happy issue so great an enterprise. He pretended to dispose of the Sicilian crown, both as superior lord of that particular kingdom, and as vicar of Christ, to whom all kingdoms of the earth were subjected, and he made a tender of it to Richard, Earl of Cornwall, whose immense riches he flattered himself would be able to support the military operations against Mainfroy. As Richard had the prudence to refuse the present, he applied to the king, whose levity and thoughtless disposition gave Innocent more hopes of success, and he offered him the crown of Sicily for his second son, Edmund. Henry, allured by so magnificent a present, without reflecting on the consequences, without consulting either with his brother or the Parliament, accepted of the insidious proposal, and gave the Pope unlimited credit to expend whatever sums he thought necessary for completing the conquest of Sicily. Innocent, who was engaged by his own interest to wage war on Mainfroy, was glad to carry on his enterprises at the expense of his ally. Alexander the Fourth, who succeeded him in the papal throne, continued the same policy, and Henry was surprised to find himself on a sudden involved in an immense debt which he had never been consulted in contracting. The sum already amounted to a hundred and thirty-five thousand five hundred and forty-one marks, beside interest. And he had the prospect, if he answered this demand, of being soon loaded with more exorbitant expenses if he refused it, of both incurring the Pope's displeasure and losing the crown of Sicily, which he hoped soon to have the glory of fixing on the head of his son. He applied to the Parliament for supplies, and that he might be sure not to meet with opposition, he sent no writs to the more refractory barons. But even those who were summoned, sensible of the ridiculous cheat imposed by the Pope, determined not to lavish their money on such chimerical projects and making a pretext of the absence of their brethren, they refused to take the king's demands into consideration. In this extremity the clergy were his only resource, and as both their temporal and spiritual sovereign concurred in loading them, they were ill able to defend themselves against this united authority. The Pope published a crusade for the conquest of Sicily, and required every one who had taken the cross against the infidels, or had vowed to advance money for that service, to support the war against Mainfroy, a more terrible enemy, as he pretended, to the Christian faith than any Saracen. He levied a tenth on all ecclesiastical benefices in England for three years, and gave orders to excommunicate all bishops who made not punctual payment. He granted to the king the goods of intestate clergymen, the revenues of vacant benefices, the revenues of all non-residents, but those taxations being levied by some rule were deemed less grievous than another imposition which arose from the suggestion of the Bishop of Hereford, and which might have opened the door to endless and intolerable abuses. 
this prelate who resided at the court of rome by a deputation from the english church drew bills of different values but amounting on the whole to a hundred and fifty thousand five hundred and forty marks on all the bishops and abbots of the kingdom and granted these bills to italian merchants who it was pretended had advanced money for the service of the war against mainfroy as there was no likelihood of the English prelate submitting, without compulsion, to such an extraordinary demand, Rustan the legate was charged with the commission of employing authority to that purpose, and he summoned an assembly of the bishops and abbots, whom he acquainted with the pleasure of the Pope and of the King. Great were the surprise and indignation of the assembly. The Bishop of Worcester exclaimed that he would lose his life rather than comply. The Bishop of London said that the Pope and King were more powerful than he, but if his meter were taken off his head, he would clap on a helmet in its place. The Legate was no less violent on the other hand, and he told the assembly in plain terms that all ecclesiastical benefices were the property of the Pope, and he might dispose of them either in whole or in part as he saw proper. In the end, the bishops and abbots, being threatened with excommunication, which made all their revenues fall into the king's hands, were obliged to submit to the exaction, and the only mitigation which the legate allowed them was that the tenths already granted should be accepted as a partial payment of the bills. But the money was still insufficient for the pope's purpose. The conquest of Sicily was as remote as ever. The demands which came from Rome were endless. Pope Alexander became so urgent a creditor that he sent over a legate to England threatening the kingdom with an interdict and the king with excommunication if the arrears which he pretended to be due to him were not instantly remitted. And at last Henry, sensible of the cheat, began to think of breaking off the agreement and of resigning into the pope's hand that crown which it was not intended by Alexander that he or his family should ever enjoy. The Earl of Cornwall had now reason to value himself on his foresight in refusing the fraudulent bargain with Rome, and in preferring the solid honors of an opulent and powerful prince of the blood of England to the empty and precarious glory of a foreign dignity. But he had not always firmness sufficient to adhere to this resolution. His vanity and ambition prevailed at last over his prudence and his avarice, and he was engaged in an enterprise no less expensive and vexatious than that of his brother, and not intended with much greater probability of success. The immense opulence of Richard having made the German princes cast their eye on him as a candidate for the empire, he was tempted to expand vast sums of money on his election, and he succeeded so far as to be chosen king of the Romans, which seemed to render his succession infallible to the imperial throne. He went over to Germany and carried out of the kingdom no less a sum than 700,000 marks, if we may credit the account given by some ancient authors, which is probably much exaggerated. His money, while it lasted, procured him friends and partisans, but it was soon drained from him by the avidity of the German princes, and having no personal or family connections in that country, and no solid foundation of power, he found, at last, that he had lavished away the frugality of a whole life in order to procure a splendid title, and that his absence from England, joined to the weakness of his brother's government, gave reins to the factious and turbulent dispositions of the English barons, and involved his own country and family in great calamities. The successful revolt of the nobility from King John, and their imposing on him and his successors limitations of their royal power, had made them feel their own weight and importance, 
had set a dangerous precedent of resistance and being followed by a long minority had impoverished as well as weakened that crown which they were at last induced from the fear of worse consequences to replace on the head of young henry in the king's situation either great abilities and vigour were requisite to overawe the barons or great caution and reserve to give them no pretence for complaints and it must be confessed that this prince was possessed of neither of these talents he had not prudence to choose right measures he wanted even that constancy which sometimes gives weight to wrong ones he was entirely devoted to his favourites who were always foreigners he lavished on them without discretion his diminished revenue and finding that his barons indulged their disposition towards tyranny and observed not to their own vassals the same rules which they had imposed on the crown he was apt in his administration to neglect all the salutary articles of the great charter which he remarked to be so little regarded by his nobility this conduct had extremely lessened his authority in the kingdom had multiplied complaints against him and had frequently exposed him to affronts and even to dangerous attempts upon his prerogative in the year 1244, when he desired a supply from Parliament, the barons, complaining of the frequent breaches of the Great Charter, and of the many fruitless applications which they had formerly made for the redress of this and other grievances, demanded in return that he should give them the nomination of the Great Justiciary and of the Chancellor, to whose hands chiefly the administration of justice was committed and if we may credit the historian they had formed the plan of other limitations as well as of associations to maintain them which would have reduced the king to be an absolute cipher and have held the crown in perpetual pupilage and dependence the king to satisfy them would agree to nothing but a renewal of the charter and a general permission to excommunicate all the violators of it and he received no supply except a scottage of twenty shillings on each knight's fee for the marriage of his eldest daughter to the king of scotland a burden which was expressly annexed to their feudal tenures four years after in a full parliament when henry demanded a new supply he was openly reproached with the breach of his word and the frequent violations of the charter he was asked whether he did not blush to desire any aid from his people whom he professedly hated and despised to whom on all occasions he preferred aliens and foreigners and who groaned under the oppressions which he either permitted or exercised over them he was told that besides disparaging his nobility by forcing them to contract unequal and mean marriages with strangers no rank of men was so low as to escape vexations from him or his ministers that even the victuals consumed in his household the clothes which himself and his servants wore still more the wine which they used were all taken by violence from the lawful owners and no compensation was ever made them for the injury that foreign merchants to the great prejudice and infamy of the kingdom shunned the english harbours as if they were possessed by pirates and the commerce with all nations was thus cut off by these acts of violence that loss was added to loss and injury to injury while the merchants who had been despoiled of their goods were also obliged to carry them at their own charge to whatever place the king was pleased to appoint them that even the poor fishermen on the coast could not escape his oppressions and those of his courtiers and finding that they had not full liberty to dispose of their commodities in their english market were frequently constrained to carry them to foreign ports and to hazard all the perils of the ocean rather than those which awaited them from his oppressive emissaries and that his very religion was a ground of complaint to his subjects while they observed that the waxen tapers and splendid silks employed in so many useless processions were the spoils which he had forcibly ravished from the true owners 
Throughout this remonstrance, in which the complaints derived from an abuse of the ancient right of purveyance may be supposed to be somewhat exaggerated, there appears a strange mixture of regal tyranny in the practices which gave rise to it, and of the aristocratical liberty, or rather licentiousness, in the expressions employed by the Parliament. But a mixture of this kind is observable in all the ancient feudal governments, and both of them proved equally hurtful to the people. As the king, in answer to the remonstrance, gave the Parliament only good words and fair promises, attended with the most humble submissions, which they had often found deceitful, he obtained at that time no supply, and therefore in the year 1253, when he found himself again under the necessity of applying to Parliament, he had provided a new pretense which he deemed infallible, and taking the vow of a crusade, he demanded their assistance in that pious enterprise. The Parliament, however, for some time hesitated to comply, and the ecclesiastical order sent a deputation consisting of four prelates, the primate and the bishops of Winchester, Salisbury, and Carlisle, in order to remonstrate with him on his frequent violations of their privileges, the oppressions with which he had loaded them and all his subjects, and the uncanonical and forced elections which were made to vacant dignities. End of section 3, chapter 12, part 3. Recording by S. T. Macduff.